You're listening to one of the fully public episodes of Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia, and I'm assisted behind the scenes by my sound engineer, Justin Ward. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art, and about how everyone is wrong apart from us. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To gain access to full-length versions of all our episodes, support us on Patreon at 2 for T. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Megan Dow. Megan is the author of five books, um, including The Problem with Everything, My Journey Through the New Culture Wars, and The Unspeakable and Other Subjects of Discussion. Um, I've read both of those, so I'm going to focus our discussion on those two works. She is also the editor of um, Selfish, Shallow, and Self-Absorbed, 16 Writers on the Decision Not to Have Kids. At the essay collection, she's written an essay collection called My Misspent Youth and um, a memoir, Life Would Be Perfect If I Lived in That House, and a novel called The Quality of Life Report. And she is um, a fellow podcast host, and her podcast is called The Unspeakable Podcast. Welcome, Megan. Thank you for having me, Ayana. It's a pleasure to be here. So, as I often do with writers, I'm going to begin by um, reading a passage from your work that I found particularly meaningful and suggestive. I guess it feeds into a question that I have about um, how you choose the subjects of your nonfiction and what freedoms you think the the genre gives you, the genre of the personal essay gives you uh, or doesn't give you as compared with memoir and fiction. And this essay, which is my favorite one in your slightly earlier book, The Unspeakable, is called The Joni Mitchell Problem. I think it's called The Joni Mitchell Problem, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, The Joni Mitchell Problem. Joni didn't shape my approach to language as much as my approach to my own emotions. She taught me the power of not taking things personally. She taught me that feelings can be separated from the self, that they can undock from our psyches and hurtle their way to the outer reaches of the atmosphere, where they can transmit not just our own aches and agonies, but also the collective invisible passions of, if not all of humanity, at least a whole bunch of people beside ourselves. She conditioned me to appreciate the concept of amor fati, another Nietzschean preoccupation that has to do with taking a positive view of all of life's circumstances, including those shot through with suffering and loss. Though possibly the real takeaway is that even if everything in life does not in fact happen for a reason, it always has the potential to be mined for the sake of art. The conventional wisdom about Joni is that she wears her heart or even her guts, on her sleeve. There may be truth to that, but she also siphons out her messy emotions and rearranges them into coherent ideas, making for a very finely tailored sleeve. This is not the technique of a confessionalist, though that's the rap she gets. Say something for yourself, is what Chris Christopherson said to Joni 
after she played him a demo of her 1971 breakout-turned-classic, Blue. It's practically impossible to read anything about that album or that period of Joni's history without running across that anecdote. But despite its omnipresence, the story has always struck me as generic and anticlimactic. We never hear what Joni said to him after that. We don't know if she defended herself, or felt embarrassed, or even cared in the least what Chris Christopherson thought of her record. Four decades later, it's hard to imagine that too many people ever cared what Chris Christopherson thought of anything. But it's also a crucial anecdote, in that Christopherson's remark is emblematic of one of the central aspects of the Joni Mitchell problem. It's emblematic of the tone deafness suffered by many who fancy themselves discerning listeners. It speaks to the inability of most people to tell the difference between putting yourself out there and letting it all hang out. Letting it all hang out is indiscriminate and frequently gratuitous. It's the stuff of paint flung mindlessly at a canvas and words brought up via reverse peristalsis, never to be revised or thought better of, always to be mystically discounted as a gift from above. Letting it all hang out is an inherently needy gesture. It asks the audience to do the heavy lifting. It dares the audience to confront the material, without necessarily making that material worth anyone's while. Putting yourself out there is another matter entirely. It's an inherently generous gesture, a gift from artist to listener or viewer or reader. The artist who puts herself out there is not foisting a confession on her audience as much as letting it in on a secret, which he then turns into a story. That's Joni's entire modus operandi. She doesn't want us to care about her heartbreak. She's inviting us to think about heartbreak in a more general sense. Her best lyrics seem to orbit the earth. It's hard to avoid the space analogies. They start with a small detail, like a woman in a makeup mirror or a sparkling Christmas lawn display, and accelerate to bigger ones, like rain or naked flesh or the wrath of prairie thunder. Then they hit on a few ambitious metaphors about the sky or ancient gods, and glide back down to the place where they started, where the woman in the makeup mirror suddenly has a wrinkle or two on her face. Whether or not the artist behind such lyrics needs to save something for herself is beside the point. The point is that she had something to say, and is saying it as artfully as she possibly can. Whether or not there's anything left of her afterward is none of her business. So, I guess, do you feel there's a difference between that kind of, um, the way in which you mine your own experiences for literary material when you're writing uh, memoir versus fiction versus personal essays? Well, first of all, thank you for reading that passage. And thank you for singling out that essay. I think it's the most, to me, it's the most important piece in that book, The Unspeakable. It's really, to me, like almost a, not almost, it really is a, a primer on how to read the book. It's sort of kind of subtle instructions as to how to take the book as a whole. 
Um, and not too many people have picked up on that. It's probably the least discussed of all the essays in that book. So thank you for that. Um, and then to answer your question, um, actually, what was your question since I just blabbed on in a different direction? You're talking about, <laughs> sorry, ask it again. <laughs> Great start. How do you feel that writing, uh, so when you're writing personal essays versus when you're writing memoirs or when you're writing fiction, What's what's the difference for you? What what makes the personal essay a good format? What can mm. you do with it and not do with it um, versus other genres? There's so much you can do with the personal essay. And for a long time, I was really snobby about personal essays versus memoir. I did. I do have a memoir. I published a memoir. Life would be perfect if I lived in that house, which is about my obsession with um, shelter and domestic spaces and where we live and, you know, the, the sort of, you know, where, where interior design meets, you know, the soul kind of thing. But before that book, I, I was kind of like, well, I, I, I'm a personal essayist. I'm not a memoirist. And I don't think there's necessarily a ton of difference, but I do love the personal essay because there's so much room in it to experience you know, explore all sorts of genres. There's reporting, there's comedy, there's, you know, lyric essay, there's, uh, you know, there's, there's memoir, there's, there's all sorts of things you can do. There's biography, there's, you can sort of incorporate any number of literary genres into this thing called the essay, um, and, and create something, uh, quite magical from it. Um, so I just, for, for any number of reasons that I always sort of come back to that. That's kind of my default setting in terms of genre, but there would certainly be, you know, other occasions in which I, you know, I chose to write fiction. I haven't written a lot of fiction. I certainly haven't published a lot of fiction, but I did publish a novel um, quite a long time ago now, back in 2003. And part of the reason that was a novel was that it was, you know, inspired by experiences that I had, in my life that I had tried to write about in nonfiction and that I just couldn't quite get right. Um, I didn't, it was a complicated, fraught kind of theme, set of themes. And I didn't really have the chops at that time as a writer to nail it in nonfiction. So I ended up doing it in fiction. Hmm. That's interesting. Why do you think, um, what was it that you couldn't nail in nonfiction? Um, was it, you felt you needed to bring in more evidence or you needed to resolve more ambiguities or what is it that the fiction allowed you to do? I mean, I, it, I, when I was 29, almost 30, I moved from New York city where I had been living for all of my twenties, uh, to Nebraska for really no apparent reason, no reason that made a lot of sense to people. Um, I could go into you know, the, the sort of the outline of the reasons was that I was broke. I was in a lot of debt. I had had a lot of student loans. I was living in Manhattan as a freelance writer in this kind of, you know, low rent sex in the city uh, way, certainly nothing that glamorous. Uh, but I, I just, I felt myself, I was at once becoming more and more provincial in that New York city way as I got older and also just broker because I could not um, really afford to live there as a freelancer, even though I was doing pretty well as a freelancer. Anyway, so I decided that I was going to move to the prairie. Uh, and I'd always had a like fascination, almost fetish with the American prairie. I loved 
Little House on the Prairie, and I loved the aesthetic, and I loved, I just loved the landscape and the big sky and the and the flat plains. Um, and I had been to Lincoln, Nebraska, doing magazine story, and kind of met some people who seemed cool, and it seemed like a great place. So I moved for no reason to Lincoln, Nebraska, in 1999. And um, once I got there, I just had all sorts of observations about social class and geography. And, um, you know, I was this very young, I mean, I was 30. I had, I was 29 when I got there, which, you know, by, by New York City standards is incredibly young. Although, you know, I would get there and there would be plenty of 29 year olds who had like, you know, families and children and were already on their second marriage and, you know, second set of kids. So I, I, I was observing a lot of things just about socioeconomic class and, and the trappings of class and sort of aspirations. And it was funny, but it was also pretty loaded. Um, there was, there was, you know, I, I was, investigating my own snobbiness, um, the way I had been raised, just a whole bunch of stuff. And so I tried to write about myself kind of, you know, landing in this place and, and having a set of biases and, um, being kind of just kind of, kind of bratty, uh, you know, hopefully endearing kind of brat, uh, in this place. And it didn't work at all. My agent at the time was like, this is terrible. Like you really look like an asshole, you know, sorry. And he was right. <laughs> um, and so then I kind of just started over and I created a character um, who had come from New York City to this fictional town called Prairie City, PC for short. <laughs> Very clever. Um, and uh, she was a television reporter, which is something I had never been. And I invented this whole kind of um, job for her where she had you know, she was, she worked for a, an early morning program in New York City where, it, and she was going to report back to the New York audience about her simple, simple, you know, she has simplified her life, um, on the prairie. This was the time of the simplicity movement. I don't know if people remember that. It was like a big deal to kind of like declutter and, you know, real simple magazine was big at the time. And here you can buy this. $800 wastebasket. Feng Shui was something people talked about, for instance. So it was a spoof on all of that. It was a media satire and it was making fun of this character. And anyway, this is extremely long-winded answer to say that I, at that time, did not have the ability to talk about these issues without the veil of fiction. And that's because they were pretty loaded. And frankly, I'm not sure. I think it was the right choice because it was a very funny novel and it was fun and it was absurd in places. And um, I was able to go a lot of places that I could not have gone if it was nonfiction. So um, at that time it worked, but for whatever reason, I wasn't pulling it off in nonfiction. It's, it's really interesting that you were able to, um, you were able to create a character who was less sympathetic um, and that works in fiction because the author and character are clearly not the same. Um, but if you're doing that in the personal essay, people are judging you and that makes them switch off from reading the personal essay. Or at least, actually, I think it makes them read it and then write angry things about it on Twitter. Right. Well, yes. This was before Twitter, though, right? I mean, this yes, novel would yes. never, ever be, it would never be published now. And certainly it would not be well received on Twitter. I mean, this novel made fun of every single possible category of person. This narrator 
first and foremost. But um, no, it was a it was a wildly satirical and in places over the top. I I have written essay. I have written personal essays where I think I'm ex- I come off not in a very flattering light at all. Um, I've written you know about my mother, for instance. I've written about my family. I've written about various relationships, and I think I come off pretty badly. Um, and surprisingly, for the most part, um, readers have. Um, have kind of taken it in the right spirit. I think they relate enough to it that um, I haven't gotten gotten a lot of pushback. But, you know, a lot of my work, you know, well, I, I had the great luxury of the first 15 years of my career happening before Twitter. So I think everything would have been different if it were otherwise. Yeah, I have noticed that you um, for one thing, you don't shy away from controversial topics, and that does seem to be one of your um, particular, I, I guess, goals as a writer um, is to, um, to to kind of break the lockstep and to talk about, say, the things that people are afraid to say because they might be too controversial, um, and to admit to the things that people don't want to admit to, and. I have noticed that you are unafraid to potentially be disliked in your mem- in your personal essays in the way that you portray yourself and I think that's a very that's quite that's quite a courageous thing to do. <laughs> I didn't know where you were going <laughs> to go with that. Uh well, um I guess I mean my feeling has always been that you become a writer in order to say the things that other people aren't saying either because they're afraid to say it or they can't figure out how to say it or they're kind of thinking something but they can't they don't even really they haven't parsed it enough to to understand what exactly it is they're thinking that's the delight of the job mm. and so mm. yeah, um my, absolutely. yeah i mean you know this so my feeling is uh, i i haven't really changed my approach at all the reason i wanted to be a writer. The reason I became an essayist was because I loved exploring ideas and I loved, you know, sort of saying to my reader, Hey, you know, there's something going on in the world and the conventional wisdom about it is this, but what if we thought about it this other way? Maybe what if what's actually happening is this sort of other manifestation entirely? Um, and so sort of, you know, I, I, I want to invite the reader to come along with me as I sort through my thoughts and it doesn't necessarily have to land in a place of, well, and now this is what it is and you will agree with me. Not, not at all. Um, but I want to say something surprising. Um, and you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, that, that was the job. That's what was rewarded. That's what editors paid you to write. And that's what readers responded to. And there was no question that that was just how you proceeded as a a public thinker. Um, And so obviously today we have a a very, very different kind of uh, framework for, for thinking on the page and in the culture. Yeah. You said you felt it at at one stage, you felt as though I'm not sure if I can remember the phrasing of this. I don't think so, but that they were, there were only two options kind of join the chorus of everybody making the same noises, saying the same things and agreeing, or or to be completely ignored. Yeah, well I talk about that in the problem with everything. So right, that that in, in that book, um it's 
that book is a little bit different from my other books, although not really. It's funny. It's been received very differently. Um, but yeah, oh, it has. Oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. I mean, I was, really tell me about that. Oh, the problem with everything. Um, I mean, that is my most recent book. It came out in, uh, 2019 at the end of 2019. <laughs> the paperback is only now just about to come out because, you know, of everything that's happened the last couple of years. Um, oh yeah. I, I have been a writer. I mean, I started publishing in the, mid nineties, early to mid nineties. And I was really fortunate. I, there was, there seemed to be an appetite for what I was saying. I didn't always make everybody happy. In fact, I made a lot of people mad, but I was writing pieces in places like the New Yorker, New York times magazine, um, you know, GQ, all the, all the glossy magazines. And I was, I was definitely approved of by the media establishment by the publishing establishment. I was published by great publishers and I, you know, wrote for all the right magazines. And, you know, as my career went on, I think the unspeakable, which came out in 2014, the end of 2014, um, you know, it won some awards and I got grants and fellowships and I was on judging committees and I was considered part of the, crowd. I was saying things that were considered the right things to say, although um, there are certainly the unspeakable contains far more unspeakable ideas than anything in the problem with everything. But the culture changed so radically between um, 2014 and, you know, even frankly, the 2016 is when I started writing the the problem with everything. Something happened right around 2014, 2015, where um, a lot of the people who, you know, had sort of gone about their their publishing careers, their writing careers, their academic careers, whatever it was, um, leading with critical thought and being open to ideas and having a sense of irony and having a sense of humor and meeting people where they were intellectually, um, suddenly that approach gave way to um, there's only one side to be on. You're either going to kind of line up with these, these sorts of values and this kind of framing of the world, which like has something to do with social justice. And we're going to say it's all about that, but it's, it was never really all that coherent. You were either on that side or you were problematic. Um, and so I went from being really um kind of beloved by <laughs> a lot of people in publishing and, and media and young fans and people you know young writers looked up to me oh yeah suddenly i was i was deemed problematic and i was a disappointment and i had betrayed um you know like generations of readers and um i was cast out in a way and i'm not saying i was canceled i was absolutely not canceled I continue to work. I continue to function, but um, I certainly saw a lot of stuff on Twitter and elsewhere that suggested I had taken a real turn uh, in a direction uh, that was people were not happy about. Was that did that have anything to do with your um, uh, your kind of chronicling of the different stages of feminism? Because um, the trouble with everything 
as you say, was initially going to be a, a, a critique of, of contemporary feminism yeah. and a charting of the ways in which feminism has changed from when you and I, because I think we're pretty much exactly the same age, maybe I'm one year older than you, when you and I were undergraduates, let's say, in the late 80s, early 90s, um, and the feminism of today. And it's, um, and you do partially do that in the book. Um, yeah. And you talk about, you say that initially the book was going to be called, um, You Are Not a Bad Ass. <laughs> Could you explain that a little bit to, to our yeah, listeners? Yeah, it had, uh, yeah, You Are Not a Bad Ass. Well, again, so I think this really, the, there was this kind of pivotal period around 2014. 2015, I just started noticing that a lot of people on Twitter, a lot of journalists, a lot of sort of culture, cultural critics, cultural reporters, people in that space, novelists too, anybody sort of in the cultural sphere, um, they went, there was a sense that um, people who had until pretty recently been you know, pretty playful, had a kind of ironic, knowing, often dark sense of humor, um, where had a, had a kind of elasticity in their sensibility, could kind of like <laughs> see where people were coming from. Um, there was suddenly this um, kind of trend toward, I don't want to, I, I don't want to use the word victimization because that sounds, that's really loaded and sounds kind of ham-fisted, but there was a sort of commodification of grievance. Let's put it that way. I noticed that a lot of women, even women my age who had grown up in the 70s and the 80s and, you know, free to be you and me, 1970s, and then the kind of, uh, you know, you go girl, women can do anything, uh, conquer the office, uh, master of the universe, 80s, uh, and then this kind of riot girl, um, you know, kick-ass 90s, suddenly it was fashionable to complain about men in a way that I thought was really kind of simplistic and juvenile. This idea of toxic masculinity arose. Um, it became, there was a lot of kind of social currency in complaining about how men were talking over you or taking up too much space on the subway or just like, you know, being um, oppressive with their power. And obviously there's some truth to all of that. It would be silly to sit here and deny that that was true, but it seemed so not only disproportionate to reality, but disingenuous to me. I thought, why are these women doing that? Because just a few years ago, we were sitting around, you know, rolling our eyes at boorish male behavior and actually feeling sorry for men a lot of the time because women seemed to be doing so much better. You know, we're in a moment where women have higher levels of educational attainment um, in schools. Girls perform better academically. The whole culture is increasingly set up to favor um, you know, tra traits that are more common to, to girls. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of couples, I don't know if there's data on this, but I think that like there have been some studies that show that, you know, couples who are expecting a baby, they want girls. Like the world just seemed 
like it felt like girls were were on top and suddenly there was this vernacular on social media especially that it was completely the opposite and i found it uh perplexing and so i wanted to look at um why this was happening and so the whole badass conceit yeah so there was this suddenly this rise of this sort of cultural trope of the badass which was like the woman you know for whom the world is so oppressive that even getting up in the morning and putting on you know her getting dressed and going to work and walking down the street and you know fighting off the patriarchy makes you a badass you know and so i wanted to call the book you are not a badass and really just kind of um kind of confine it to a critique of this new form of feminist expression and really look at the generational divides within feminism and kind of interrogate why I was feeling so alienated from this. So it was going to be a pretty short book. And, uh, and I assumed, so I started working on this in 2016 and I assumed that Hillary Clinton would be president and everyone could kind of handle a book like this. Um, and obviously that did not happen. And the culture wars really exploded in such a way that the feminist discussion was only one piece of it. Suddenly we were talking about, about race and um, other kinds of gender um, expression, and it just became much, much more comprehensive. Uh, so I needed to find a way to, to touch on all of those things. Um, but I also was, of course, I'm a white chick, so there's only so much I can talk about, right? It's hard. It was very, very tricky needle to thread. Do you feel that the race conversation, quote unquote, I think you say somewhere they call it a conversation because there, there really isn't, aren't any, uh, people call it a conversation when they don't have any specific proposals they're making or, uh, actionable things that they want to do. Um, do you feel that the, the kind of, the discourse, the conversation got taken over by race because I feel as though there is this tension, largely unspoken tension between um, feminist demands and anti-racist demands. So whereas it used to be, for example, um, it was a sign of kind of strength and bad assery in, mm -hmm. in, that, in that ridiculous way to be somebody who didn't um, who didn't stand for any nonsense, who if you were right. ill-treated um, by uh, in a restaurant or in a store or um, by whoever it might be, that you were willing to, um, you were willing to complain. You were willing to stand up for yourself. And now it's become, yeah. the trope has become, that's a white woman thing. It's it's oh, um, like being call, a Karen. asking to speak to the manager. Yeah, exactly. that kind of thing. <laughs> it's being a Karen and that is in itself somehow racist. Right. Do you, do you feel that that, have you noticed a shift there? Well, there's so many moving pieces here. Ugh, so mm. you know, I, so the problem with everything, right. So I was going to call it, you are not a badass. Then it kind of, you know, it took on all these other kinds of things started coming up with the, the rise, you know, the, the Trump era. Um, uh, and the race thing had not really taken off. I mean, the race thing did not become as heated as it has become until the summer of 2020, really, I think. And so the book was already out by then. 
Um, but yeah, I think that it's, it's so complicated because we can talk about like, we can talk about women speaking up or standing up to authority. Um, but I think that that's that, you know, definitely race has superseded gender or at least feminism as a thing to talk about. You know, I've said this before, white women are the new white men. So we have about as little public sympathy now as white men have had for the last several years. So I guess we've achieved equality. So the the work is done. Um, I, it's just, I, frankly, I think that all of this conversation um, and that's for lack of a better word, I always kind of have to hold my nose a little bit when I use that word and I use it frequently, the discourse, whatever you want to call it, 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 it is not as fine tuned as it needs to be. And that's because calling something a conversation in and of itself is saying that you're speaking in such broad terms that it's impossible to know what we're, what we're talking about. I mean, I, I don't think it's true to say that, you know, uh, that, people are calling any sort of discussion about racism or systemic racism a conversation because they don't have specific proposals. I mean, Black Lives Matter does have policy ideas, um, whether or not they're being put forth, you know, broadly or as coherently as they could be is another question. But, you know, we do have concepts like abolish the police. We have concepts like make college free for certain people. We have reparations. Like those are all things. So I don't think mm, we can mm. say that that there there aren't any concrete proposals, but um, I just think that unfortunately, the, the any kind of discussion about identity issues um, have become hijacked by the least thoughtful people. I mean, this is the problem, and I've said this before. You know, if it's almost like the smart, thoughtful people are smart enough to keep their mouths shut, we're in um, we're in a dialogue, a sort of discourse culture right now where everything is taken out of context. Um, everybody is, you know, anything you say will be interpreted in the least flattering light. And as a result, the people who actually are thoughtful and sensitive and want to make helpful contributions to any discussion are thoughtful and sensitive enough to keep their mouths shut. And that means that the stupid, thoughtless people are the ones doing most of the talking. And so it just devolves. Uh, we just get, you know, kind of sink further and further into this hole of really unuseful and and um, poisonous uh, discourse. And um, nobody, uh, nobody smart wants to participate. And why, why would they? You talk about... Um... So you talk about during the Me Too era, um, you recognized in some of the portrayals um, that some of the women gave of a man within the media world um, with whom they had had these awkward lunches as uh, somebody who had taken you out regularly for lunch um, as a young woman and where you also did this thing, which I remember doing all the time in my 20s, of kind of hoping to get the thing I wanted or needed, the job or the money or whatever, whilst and, and just kind of playing along with the flirtation just enough to, to, um, 
to keep the person sweet while right. sort of hoping that it wasn't that I wasn't going to you know nothing more was actually going to develop and feeling always a bit uneasy at the idea that might flip over into more explicit sexual advances yeah i thought that was i'm not sure how to make a question out of that i just thought that was a really interesting part of the book and you said that um you began to read a lot of um accounts by middle-aged women of um experiences they had had in youth which they and dates they had been on which they now had permission to see as problematic something like that mm-hmm. i thought that was an interesting um phrasing yeah and i just want to make something clear so i i think you might have been obliquely referring to the shitty media men list which is something i talk about in the book and that is this you know document that came out couple of years ago yes. now that was, you know, I think I'm sure most of your audience kn- knows what this is, where there were, um, you know, women had anonymously accused um, a whole bunch of men, I think over a hundred um, accused, you know, by these men were named of any number of offenses from rape to weird lunch. I think weird at lunch was one of the, uh, <laughs> was, was one of the accusations. <laughs> um, and I joked that, uh, you know, if I was going to write a memoir of uh, being working in the publishing business in the nineties, it would be called weird lunch. But ju- just to be clear, um, there was nobody on that list that I had had any interaction with. The, the, the person, the, the man with whom I had had some weird lunches in my twenties was somebody who was long retired and was, was not on that list, but who had come up um, on a Facebook thread uh, that I saw of some women of sort of, you know, older generation women, you know, looking back on that time and saying, Oh yeah, no, this guy, I remember having to go out to lunch with this guy and they weren't even naming him actually. And there was kind of a chorus of women saying, Oh yeah, that just, it felt like it was really quid pro quo. I just, I felt icky about that. And I remember looking at that uh, Facebook thread and thinking like, oh, that's weird. And that kind of reminds me of, um, of the guy that I had weird lunches with. Um, but I'm sure that's not him because I didn't feel that way about it. Like, oh, that's not him. That's weird. It's kind of similar, but that's funny. It's not him. And, it, and it's like, I kind of had to then, you know, force myself. I was like, why are you so determined to have that not be the same person it's like are you are you so invested in some some concept of yourself as somebody who never had any uh any kind of unpleasant interaction or you know you're you're so invested in the idea that you're not one of these me too um you know that that this did not touch your life at all that you just refused to kind of look at this um and in fact, it was, they were talking about the the person that I had had lunch with. But the, you know, this is not somebody. Uh, this is not somebody who ever gave me an ultimatum. I never felt threatened by this person. It was all very under the surface, um, not entirely under the surface. But you know, I think maybe part of my and this goes to what you were just saying. I think part of my reluctance is because I knew and I know that and I knew at the time that this person was older and had power. Um, but I was young and also had a lot of power and I was using it to my advantage in a way that I didn't even, I wasn't even fully conscious of. Like I knew this person could probably help me in my career, not in any huge way. This wasn't a person that anybody has heard of. This is not a famous person. This is, 
like, you know, a, 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 a working person in the industry who had been there for a long time. Um, and I knew that I could have picked up the phone at any time and made his life really difficult. Uh, so that there was a certain power there. And I guess I just think that this is all so much more nuanced and complicated than um, a lot of the, the Me Too discussions, um, especially were at that time. I think, I think in the time since, they've become a lot more interesting and, um, you know, kind of tolerant of er gray areas. Mm. Yeah, I have to say that I think that I want to avoid the kind of exaggeration of um, what happened as as grievance or as victimhood, um, because I I think so I am going to use the word victimhood, Mm -hmm. um, because I think there has been a lot of valorization of victimhood, this kind of idea that if you suffered, it was somehow ennobling um, or made you a kind of badass fighter and survivor, etc. And um, I don't like that kind of hyperbole. But at the same time, I must say what I, I don't in any way feel that I had any sense of being powerful in those kinds of situations back then. Um, I think that was partly because of my personality as a young woman. And now I also really feel a great sense of relief that if I have a lunch with, if somebody is interested, says they're interested in writing for a funding area or something and wants to go to lunch with me, I, there's no part of me that thinks, Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm going, but I'm a bit scared of what might or might not happen at the lunch. Or, or you don't have to worry that they really, you don't have to worry that they really just want to go on a date with you. <laughs> yeah, I don't have yeah. to worry. If, yeah. um, if you, if, uh, it's unusual enough that somebody fancies me um, <laughs> that oh. I don't have to worry about it. Don't <laughs> yourself short. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's what, you know, a lot of women as we get older, you know, women talk about being invisible. Um, and at first it's really shocking and there is a grief there, but then you realize there's mm-hmm. incredible power and invisibility. It's like when they always say, like, if if you could choose between two superpowers, flight or invisibility, which would you choose? The thing is, I would choose flight. I would never choose invisibility because I don't, because I'm terrified of hearing what people would say about me behind my back. So that, yeah. Um, But imagine the writing you could do (laughs) if you were invisible and able to spy on people. I know, but yeah, I have a, like, I don't, you know, you asked me before why it is that I don't care if people don't like me. And I do care that people don't like me, but I'm also like, I operate just with my head in the sand. I never, I never would have a Google alert on myself. I don't look up what anybody says about me. I really, I don't want to hear it. I can only imagine. I haven't looked at uh, an Amazon page for my last several books. I haven't even glanced at it. It's like a hot stove. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't look at the rank. I don't look at the reviews. Um, I just feel like I don't need to know. Um, If there was any, if if looking at the rank or the reviews or knowing what people were saying about me online, if that was anything that I could do something about or improve the situation, if I knew about it, that would be a different thing. But there's just, I I don't have any control over that. So I just Mm -hmm. feel like I don't need to know. 
No, I think I think that's always best. I haven't read any bad reviews of your books. I'm not saying oh, that. Oh, they're, they're out there. They're out there. I mean, because I know <laughs> the problem with everything got some eviscerating reviews. In mm. you know, not I mean, by critics in in publications in in the New Yorker and in Book Forum. I mean, it was scathing, um, and it uh, you know, it's it's just funny because. The stuff that is in the unspeakable is truly unspeakable. The problem with everything, I, the gloves were on. If anything, I think the book, um, there was too little, there was a little too much bending over backwards. There was a little too much equivocating. I think I could have gone harder. Um, and I, I think maybe, I, I, I wonder sometimes if I had gone harder, if the response had been different. You know, I joke that at one point I wanted to call the book woke me when it's over. <laughs> um, that was kind of a theme in the book. And, uh, yeah, actually it's funny because, you know, there was a big, a lot of people, a lot of my colleagues, like people, you know, professional people said, oh, that's a brilliant title. You'd be crazy not to call it that. And I also thought, yeah, it's a funny line, but I'm not sure it's a great title. I, I think it's, it sells itself short. It sounds like the kind of title that like Ann Coulter would call something if she was right. clever, clever right. enough. And so I didn't call it that, but, um, but yeah, I mean, the stuff that's in the unspeakable is truly brutal and some of it is truly shocking and truly dark. And, you know, there's a whole piece in that, in the unspeakable, an essay called honorary dyke. Okay. That's the title of the piece. And it's about my sort of affinity for lesbian culture and my, um, my experience as a woman and a kind of like um, a, a kind of sort of solace I take in a certain kind of um, androgyny. Uh, and it just has to do with the sort of aesthetics of lesbianism. And that piece, you know, was that, that piece was in a book that got big award that got awards and reviews, you know, positive reviews in mainstream media. I went on NPR and talked about that book and nobody batted an eye. I mean, it did Roxanne Gay actually reviewed The Unspeakable in the New York Times book review and it was overall favorable review. She did ding me for the honorary dyke piece. Um uh although it's actually my one of my favorite pieces in the book and she was I think she was absolutely the only person that complained. Uh and it just goes to show what a difference a few years makes because that was late 2014. And by 2016, we were in a completely different place in the culture. And um, that kind of material was utterly unacceptable, uh, you know, not to mention something that I don't think would have been praised publicly. But it's funny because it still is. Like the people who they still love, they still love the unspeakable, but they don't like the problem with everything. It's the same people. It's, I find it baffling. <laughs> Yeah, in one of, I can't remember in which of the books you talk about, you give this anecdote about Sarah Silverman. Um, so Sarah Silverman used to have, she used to have a rape joke in her set, uh, right? Which Several. was one of her. Yes. Um, yeah. And, uh, the particular joke that you mentioned was she said, I was raped by a doctor. Which was kind of a mixed, which is kind of a mixed blessing for a Jewish girl, bittersweet. or something like it's that. So, right, I was raped. By, right, I was raped by my doctor, which is so bittersweet for a Jewish girl. Yeah, and she would say things like, "Rape is a terrible crime that should be punished to the maximum extent." You know, rape jokes 
are terrific or something. <laughs> like, yeah. And, you know, that was absolutely part of the, you know, vernacular of comedy and cultural critique and irony. And we, we lived in uh, a media culture and a, a, a literary culture and an entertainment culture that could um, absorb that kind of sensibility. And everybody knew where she was coming from. Anybody who mattered knew where she was coming from. I'm not saying that like every single person in the world understood where she was coming from, but that doesn't matter. You have your audience. Her audience appreciated her. We knew what she was up to. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, you know, she has now renounced those jokes. Um, she has, uh, she's really sort of backed down, although she's also, she's, I, I really see her struggling actually from a distance. I see her grappling with this stuff because I know, you know, she's expressed frustration with the group thing and the rush to judgment, but she also won't just, you know, throw down and, and defy it. I mean, I know she was, was, and I think still is friends with Louis CK and that's been complicated. Um, mm. Oh, I but bet. Yeah. 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 I think that, so um, you report that there was an interview in which she was asked about the, um, rape jokes, and she said something like, "When I made that joke, the specific one about being raped by my doctor, um, by her doctor, she said I didn't know then what I know now." And I found that a really interesting thing to say because presumably she doesn't mean that she didn't at that time know that rape was bad. Yeah, what she means is that she didn't at that time know that joking about rape was bad, and. Yeah. That seems to imply a, a complete change in how we're viewing humor. I mean, of course, there are a lot of edgy comedians still out there. Um, what's his name? That, uh, um, well, there's Dave young Chappelle. Black American. Yes, Dave Chappelle. Yeah. Um, he's not so that young anymore. Like, yeah, I know. Oh, well, okay. yes, yes, they are. No, I mean, Dave, well, I mean, Dave Chappelle. Yeah. And he's taken a lot of heat for it. Uh, yeah. you know, and they're doing it in the clubs. If you go to a comedy club where nobody can have their phone on, uh, and the stuff, you know, you're, you're in the basement there and, you know, people have come to see these comics work stuff out. That's where you, you'll see it. I mean, I've been in comedy clubs where there are comedians who, you know, I, they, they, they do some amazing set, uh, and it's really out there and it's like, you feel like you might as well be back in 1999. And, and then a week later, you see them on network television and they're doing something completely anodyne. So mm-hmm. there's definitely two different worlds. There's a back channel in comedy uh, that's very much in, in, in play. But um, yeah, I know the thing is like to say something like, well, I know, you know, I, I know I didn't know back then what I know now. That's just a way of saying, well, Twitter uh, didn't exist back then and it does now. Uh, I know now that I can get in trouble for this stuff and that it's not worth it. That's, I, you know, it's, I, and the thing is, I think people in Hollywood, there's so much money at stake that you see there's, there's nobody more timid about this stuff than people in Hollywood. Uh, and I think that's because there's just, you know, enormous, uh, enormous sums, you know, big, big uh, productions, big salaries just a lot at stake in a way that is certainly not at stake in, you know, journalism, for instance, you have many more journalists, people like us, little podcasters speaking up because 
I mean, we don't have that much to lose. I am Sarah Silverman has a lot to lose if she gets canceled. Mm, uh, mm. I, I, you or I don't, or I don't anyway. I don't know. Maybe you do, but it's not the um, same equation. Yeah, no. Well, in a sense, I have much more to lose than Sarah Silverman because she probably has enough money in the bank to now just retire. That's true. Whereas I don't know if I can exactly be cancelled, but all kinds of plugs could be pulled and then I would be in, in really deep shit financially almost immediately. Um, so I right. think she has further it, to fall. Let's think, think of it that way. I mean, yeah, people yeah. at this level, they have I'm a lot further to fall and it's scary. <laughs> I mean, it would be scary to them. Mm, if you mm, are way yeah. up in the stratosphere to think about falling, that's, that's a different kind of fear factor than I think. Yeah, I guess, like that's, us I guess that's very true. It's interesting. I think that although there are those edgy people out there, being edgy is now absolutely associated with um, being anti-woke or at least being conservative. Being an edgelord. Um, being edgy it, is now edgelord. Yes. Whereas what happened to, you know, people who have actually more woke convictions but are edgy? Uh, people like, where's the professional equivalent of somebody like Liam Kofi Bright talking at Facebook? Um, he is, uh, he's a, very funny, former guest of this podcast, very funny, very kind of edgy humor person who is also a proponent of critical race theory and very much on the kind of woke side of things. Mm -hmm. And that's extremely rare. And that I think is also a shame. Yeah. I wonder somebody like Eddie Izzard, maybe thinking, maybe, I don't yes, know what's, maybe quite what's going on with him or I'm not sure what the pronouns are these days, but yeah, I know it's, you know, it's, it's so much in flux and like, I don't know. I mean, I know, do you ever like worry about yourself as if you're obsessing about these things too much or like, this is your only topic? Oh, yeah. it's, it's endlessly fascinating. But then I also worry that I've just completely lost my mind thinking about the degree to which other people are losing their minds have caused me to lose my mind perhaps worse. Um, oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think I mislaid my mind a very long time ago. So. <laughs> mislaid. That's good. <laughs> I just I put it down with my glasses somewhere. Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, until 2018, I was for, for uh, 10 years, I was working as a dancer and dance teacher. And it wasn't until 2017 that I really became kind of interested in, in politics again, I think. Um, and I was very obsessive, but I was obsessive about the culture of the dance scene. And also, I had such incredibly strong feelings about things like, uh, you know, how people were teaching specific technical um, things to do with dance movement and um, how people were interpreting music with, with their, when they were moving in, in as dancers. I had feelings about that that were so impassioned that I find it quite hard to even believe it now. Because it had nothing to do with the culture wars? It had nothing to do with the culture wars, but also it's interesting how quickly, at least I and, and certainly other people as well, because I used to write a, a very popular dance blog. So I was a kind of micro celebrity um, in that world. And it's interesting how quickly 
things that might seem just completely tech, completely sort of uber technical geekery became in, became controversial and became invested with moral significance for people. Mm. So are you saying that within, because I know you are very involved in tango, for instance, have there yes. been kind of like, you know, inter, have, have there been sort of little culture wars erupting within that subculture? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, this is the topic for a whole nother podcast, but um, one kind of war that sort of erupted is, um, I'll try and make this as brief as possible because I don't want to go off on a huge tangent, but no, please. Um, in Tango there is this, and I've written two books about uh, the Tango culture and kind of um, sociology, um, but in Tango the the um, tradition is that to ask someone to dance, you make eye contact, you do a little meme, mime from across the room. Um, and it is considered rather gauche and in some circles actually taboo or is even not permitted um, to ask people to dance verbally. Mm. And the reason for that is it makes it more difficult for them to say no. And people want their freedom to say no. And there's a huge controversy over whether people should have that complete freedom to dance with whoever they want, or whether there are also some community obligations. So for example, if there are more women, a lot more women than men in your dance community, is it, is it kind of okay for you as a guy to dance only two dances per night with your one favorite partner and not at all the rest of the time? Or um, for example, one reason that I'm dancing tango much, much less frequently now is it's become very difficult to get dances because in general, the women only care about the quality of the man's dancing. Men like to dance with younger women. <laughs> um, so men are looking for young, attractive women to dance with. And it doesn't matter how good your dance is. And I've seen this with many, many top professional women. Um, if you're not young and beautiful, you won't get dances. And so there are some uh, sort of that that's an issue. The issue between um, choice versus responsibility is huge. And uh, my God, the wars, you know, I'm very glad that tango people in general are, tend to be very leftists who are pro gun control. And that is probably a very good thing. <laughs> It's also really good that nobody on either side has nukes. Real, you know? Really? So it's literal yeah. war within this. It's it's not world. literal war, but um <laughs> but be, you know, if like. if I, I'm glad that none of us have our finger close to the big red button, you know. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, wow. So you yeah, because I'm curious because I became aware of you on Twitter, I think know certainly the last three or four years if not more so how did you kind of stumble into thinking about politics because because you were you always a writer or or journalist or did you really just come into this more recently oh god um i'm sort of reluctant to answer because people are going to get bored if i start talking about myself okay well but i'll I try know. and answer i like to, I'll try I like and to answer very I try and answer briefly. Um, I guess, um, no, I haven't always been a writer. So I was an academic until 2006. And I really enjoyed writing kind of, um, I guess, um, literary criticism. 
that was a bit more literary and less academic. I never wrote dry academic prose. I really believed that I could never write anything creative myself. I was completely intimidated by by studying so many amazing writers. Mm. I just felt people who did write who did creative writing were on another planet. And then I um, I had always done dance as a hobby, and I became kind of a professional dance teacher. And that sort of unlocked the creative side of myself. And then I began writing, mostly, mostly this very densely metaphorical and kind of poetic, um, uh, sort of creative nonfiction stuff. But I wrote also some political essays and things. So that's what happened. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just so. It's such a cliche to say that everything has become politicized, but it it really has. I mean, I because and I think about there are a few people I know who seem to be checked out from these discussions. Like it just doesn't affect them. They're in their they're in their lives, and they either it just doesn't come up for them. They have the sort of they have a kind of job or life where. These things haven't really intervened, but um, it seems it, that that seems that those people seem fewer and, and further between. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know exactly what I'm saying. You know, I, I recently drove across the country. I drove from New York to Los Angeles and I purposely did not listen to anything that had to do with the culture wars. I did not have the radio on. I did not have NPR on, did not have talk radio on. I did not listen to any of my usual podcasts, um, but I listened to like serials and some true crime. And I listened to a podcast about Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. Um, and it was great. Like I really, I just, and I listened to a lot of music and uh, it just felt like a, a vacation from my own brain. Um, mm. And it was, mm. it was really, and I thought, well, gosh, this is the kind of, I, this is how I used to drive around. I would just, you know, listen to things that were interesting or even listening to the, even listening to NPR was just listening to the news. Um, and we've gotten so far away from anything like that. Hmm. Well, I used to listen to NPR as, as kind of, um, all the time. Um, yes, I had exactly. Quite, exactly. When I when I was living in the U.S., I listened to NPR just as wallpaper, and then exactly. uh, later I listened. Uh, b- before that, I listened to BBC Radio Four in the same way. And I think that I don't know if things have got more politicized, or if it's just that they feel more politicized to me because I dis I I disagree with more of the politics. Um, so now when I listen to Radio Four, I'm just like. Meh, you know this is nonsense a, a lot of the time because I've become so kind of anti woke. So I'm very harumphy and scroogey about everything that I'm hearing, and when I hear those kind of buzzwords um, about race and gender and stuff, I'm just like, oh fuck off. Um, I know so- I, exactly, but then I hate, <laughs> but then I hate this in myself. Mm, it's like, yeah. am I reacting to these buzzwords? And then like just shutting my brain off if I just kind of like, okay, like, all right, just get past that and listen to what this story is actually saying. I mean, gosh, I, you know, with NPR, I do think that they've 
I don't think we're crazy. I mean, the, the obsession with race, the obsession with identity and with, with what they're identifying as marginalized groups is absolutely absurd at this point. So I don't think we're imagining that. I mean, I do think there's plenty of stuff in the New York Times, for instance, that is extremely good reporting and doesn't have anything to do with this stuff. But unfortunately, it's easy to just get to, you know, the, for the cultural stuff to overshadow it and some absurd op-ed piece about somebody's, you know, identifying, you know, discovering a new gender, you know, <laughs> just kind of, kind of, you know, dominating our whole experience of, of reading the newspaper. Um, it's, I really don't like it. I, you know, I, I spent a lot of time kind of policing my own brain um, and then that feels like a form of narcissism. It's just, it's just like a vortex. I mean, I try to do it on my own show, you know, so I've got my podcast now that it's called the unspeakable. And it's funny because it's the, the it doesn't have anything overtly to do with the book, the unspeakable. Um, it really is more of an offshoot of the problem with everything, but um, the spirit of the podcast, I think really on the deepest level is the, is the spirit of the unspeakable because I want to, talk about things in a surprising way. I don't want to just obsess about the culture wars. I want to sort of try to bring new things to the culture. Um, I want to build rather than take down. But um, again, that's, it's really hard to do. I'm always like, I just, it's very easy to kind of just snap back to, uh, you know, getting harumphing, as you say, about you know, the ridiculousness mm. of everybody. It's, it's a constant, it's a, it's a constant struggle within myself, I have to say. Yeah. And I think it's also, I mean, I think anybody who is really, a, who is at all thoughtful um, or introspective or at all interested in nuance has got to be at least periodically plagued by the fear that they might be completely wrong. Yeah. Um, that's definitely, um, I definitely don't have this sort of 100% confidence. And I'm hoping that between that and my non-belief in free will, um, I can avoid getting, you know, really angry with people. And generally I can, I can nowadays avoid getting angry with people, um, apart from Hindu ethno-nationalists. I'm going to make an mm. exception for them. Um, but, um, the, the kind of, the ideas annoy me. <laughs> Yeah. Even though there is there is a some small part of my brain that thinks, hold on, you know, you you're getting more and more and more confident. Uh, does that mean that you're getting more and more and more entrenched in wrongness? Exactly. <laughs> or are you just getting possible? older? Or are you just? Yeah. It's it's like you know you're supposed to like you know not give a fuck. But is that is that it, oh, it's there's two sides to that coin, right? Like you want to get more confident, you want to get you know, less apologetic. And those are good things. But they're, they also kind of fly in the face of, of fundamental epistemic humility. You know, mm. I, I think that what's missing, and what the algorithm does not favor is just saying, I don't know, you have to be able to say that. And, you know, I, I, I think I, I say in the unspeakable, I talk about, you know, I say in the history of the world, a whole story has never been told. Nothing is ever the whole story. And there there are not even two sides to every story. There are 
infinite sides to every story. And that that is a cop-out. Like that is a rhetorical cop-out to make that statement. But I think it's also crucial to bear in mind when you're sorting through any kind of issue or disagreement. I it's you know, it, it the 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 more honest we try to be with ourselves, the more we'll feel like we're going crazy. And I think that's why then we create these tribes. Like, well, here's the tribe on the left, and here's the tribe on the right, and now we have the tribe of the people in the middle who are can't stand the left or the right. I mean, now we're our own tribe, and that's a problem, right? Yeah, <laughs> it just yeah. eats itself constantly. I I wonder. So one of the things you speculate on in the problem with everything is a generational divide between people who basically grew up online and those who didn't. Um, you say, um, my generation will be the last to have known the world, world in its analog form. As a result, we've grown old before actually getting old. Can yeah. you explain that depressing thought? <laughs> yes, I'd be happy to. Uh, well, yeah, I, I, I have this idea about how, you know, we 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 become obsolete before getting old. So I think that Gen X is in we're we're in a kind of tricky position because you know we we're not digital natives. There are certainly a lot of Gen X people who are very very good at computers uh, and the internet. So I'm not suggesting that we're all a bunch of uh, all, all a bunch of you know, incompetence. I certainly am. I'm a late adopter to everything. Yeah, me too. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, we, my first job out of college, we did have computers, um, but you know, they were inter office. There were these gigantic things at the desk and I still had a selector typewriter that I used for like, you know, typing, filling out forms and typing envelopes and doing all that kind of thing. And so it really, it, it came much later. And so you know, I think that there is, I, I often feel that I have more in common with a baby boomer who might be 20 years older than me than a millennial who might be seven years younger than me. Um, and so we, our sensibility is really rooted in something that um, is, is, is aging out. You know, the, the, the baby boomers are going to retire, that we've got to hang on for another 15 years or so in our careers. Um, and so when I say we've become obsolete before we've even gotten old, I'm talking a lot about, you know, I've been talking a lot on the podcast about this idea of the pivot, making a pivot. Everybody's talking about, especially in journalism and media, going from working for big institutions to, you know, having your own Substack or having your own podcast or crowdfunding your career you know, just being, you know, getting paid directly by your audience. And that is something that doesn't come naturally to a lot of people our age. Um, we're not as good at social media. The things that you have to do in order to promote yourself, in order to make that business model work, um, are things that not only don't come naturally to me, but are in fact anathema to me. The idea of branding yourself, that was like the worst thing you could do when we were mm. in our twenties, mm. right? Like yeah. that was yeah. the uncoolest, you know, and now it's, it's not even, there's no stigma at all. That's just what you have to do. That's called showing up to work. Everything's about branding yourself. So I, I more and more, you know, I hear from people constantly, like literally throughout the day, I get emails from people saying, you know, I, 
I'm similarly frustrated. I'm trying to pivot. I'm trying to get with you know the program. I'm trying to understand how to do things. I'm not even talking about culture war stuff. That's a whole other thing. Like, you know, I'm literally trying to figure out how to sustain my career and adapt to the new uh, professional models and the new media models. And I honestly don't know how to do it. They say, I don't know how to do it. And I don't know how to do it either. I've devoted entire podcast. I've done solo episodes talking about this and talking about my own podcast and what, what works about it and what doesn't work about it and why, what I'm doing wrong. Um, and I, you know, I have found that it's, it's scary to be honest about that. Um, cause I kind of, you know, there's a part of me that's like, well, I sound like a complete loser. Um, but I think people actually ultimately appreciate the, the transparency. So yeah. But I do feel obsolete, but I can't, but I also can't retire, you know? So yeah. we're stuck with it's that. It's the worst of all possible worlds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It feels like, so I'm, I, I'm really, I find your self-promotion a, a, a horrible thing to do. And I, I feel as though the amount of time that is spent on the kind of meta stuff, like selling Ario presenting Ario, trying to get people interested in Ario, trying to get people to give money to Ario, you know, always threatens to completely dwarf the project of actually doing Ario yeah. and putting yeah. out articles and stuff. And it feels as though the more important work is the presenting the thing than actually doing the thing. You know, the, the kind of the, self-promotion has been more important than the thing. Um, I hate that. I know. And is that because people think that the thing doesn't necessarily need to exist? Or is that because in a perfect world, you would either be so productive that you would be able to do both or you would be able to hire somebody to do the promotion? Like how, yeah. what's, how is this supposed to shake out? Yeah, I don't know. Oh, it's my dream to just hire somebody to do all of the promotion. And never think about that at all. But I think it's partly that the model nowadays is very frequently to put out content that is free. Um, and everybody expects it to be free because there is so much free stuff out there and then right. try to persuade them afterwards to give you some money. So yeah. it's a kind of busking, <laughs> you know, continual begging. And I, I, rather than selling people something. And also there's no quality control. The other thing I notice is there there's a lot of shoddy there's the the production values uh are nil and there's a lot of shoddy content. And that's not to say that there aren't people on Substack like really dotting their i's and crossing their t's and you know putting out polished material, but um there's just there people don't get mad anymore if the stuff that you're putting out is sloppy. Yeah. And I just don't have the stomach for that. There's no way mm. I'm going to do it. Um, I'm not going to, you know, people say like, why can't you get your podcast out fast enough? Like, you know, you, ugh, you recorded this like a week ago. <laughs> I was like, Good God. Well, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff that has to happen between, um, you know, recording the thing and putting it out. And, you know, by the way, I also prepare as do you clearly, you clearly prepared meticulously for this conversation. You read several of my books, you prepared your questions, you thought a lot about it. And frankly, I think that's rare. 
in podcasting. A lot of podcasters like pride themselves on not preparing. That's actually part of their, that's a point of pride that they just uh, wing it. I'm going to go back to the problem with everything a moment. I'm kind of flicking through my, I was flicking through my notes for a second there and this caught my eye that I underlined and I wanted to ask you about. So you were talking about children and um, kind of panics about children's safety. And you say only when women began encroaching on spaces where there was real money to be made and real agency to be gained were we suddenly notified of a pandemic of child peril. Inevitably, it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Thirty years later, children are more fussed over than ever, dulled by psychotropic medication and so lulled by technology that many parents can't get their children, their kids to play outside if they try. But that that first sentence is is really one of your stronger kind of feminist declarations in that book. Yeah, I think it's pretty. It was pretty clear that the you know in the late eighties, early nineties, into the mid nineties, there was the satanic preschool panic. There was the rise of safetyism. There were um, a couple of high profile child kidnappings, kidnappings by strangers. Um, the vast, vast majority of child abductions are family members, um, parents in custody disputes, that kind of thing. Um, but you had the rise of the kids on the milk cartons. Uh, and so, you know, there, yeah, there was Adam Walsh and there was Aton Pates and those were very high profile, uh, stranger kidnappings, really disturbing, horrific cases. Um, but then you had this movement where, um, missing children, the pictures of missing children were printed on milk cartons so that, you know, you'd be sitting there at your breakfast table, and see like some child's face and it would say missing. And there seemingly there were endless numbers of these kids and the vast majority of them had been kidnapped by a non-custodial parent, for instance. So there was this perception that, you know, just tens and tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of kids were being kidnapped all the time. And I think that it was no accident that that started happening around, you know, the mid the mid eighties when white women, white uh, middle-class women started working in offices and you had this kind of um, popular culture, the idea of the, the yuppie and the woman, you know, with her briefcase and her Nike shoes with her shoulder padded uh, power suit going to the office and, and leaving the kids at home. And we had this idea of the latchkey kid, the kid who was home alone because the mother was working. Now, mind you, working class women had always been in the workforce, uh, you know, women of color had always been in the workforce. This was a, a white middle class, upper middle class phenomenon. But um, I think, you know, there was some kind of, I think that, that it, there was some kind of unconscious cultural conspiracy to say like, hey, ladies, not so fast. Do you think you can go into the office and, you know, work alongside men and you don't have to be a stay at home mom. Well, guess what? If you do that, your kids are going to be kidnapped and they're going to go to daycare and people are going to be performing satanic rituals on them. And that, you know, the satanic preschool panic was embraced by mainstream feminism. The cover of Ms. Magazine featured, you know, that, that was a cover story. And that whole thing started because uh, a mother in a preschool 
I think in the McMartin case, then that was a horrible case where people went to prison, a mother in the preschool who, you know, had mental health problems, who I think had schizophrenia and, you know, just had become convinced that her child was being horribly um, sexually abused in the, in the school. And there was absolutely no evidence for it, but it became a kind of cultural, a social contagion in that community. And the other parents thought, oh, well, yeah, I guess that's true. I guess it's true. And it started happening all over the place and you had recovered memory syndrome. So I find these sorts of social contagions absolutely fascinating. Um, but yes, again, that was a very circuitous way of answering. I, I think that it's no accident that it coincided with women leaving the home, white women saying that they, they weren't going to be stay at home moms anymore. And it really, um, it was a, it's a very, I think, under-examined um, or at least under-remembered period of history. A lot of younger people have absolutely no idea that that happened. <laughs> I mean, do you remember that time? I, re- I mean, yeah, that, I remember. Yeah, yeah I, we didn't, we didn't have, um, we don't really have um, photos on milk cartons. Um, mm-hmm. I do remember that. I do remember seeing that in some films, in some movies, and. Um, I, I haven't heard of the cases that you named, but we had our own cases. And I do, so I actually um, knew, well, they're friends of, they're acquaintance, uh, very vague acquaintances of mine, friends of friends whose um, daughter was kidnapped and brutally raped and murdered aged 21. Um, it was a huge national news story a number of decades ago. Um, and, um, I met them and they were um, really keen to impress upon me um, all kinds of rules of conduct. Um, so they told me, for example, if you go for a, a walk every day, go at a different time every single day, never take the same route twice mm. in a row. Um, and uh, many, many other things which had to do with kind of safety. And I remember just sitting there feeling uh, both, I completely understood, I completely understand where, why their approach is a zero tolerance of danger approach. Um, and there's nothing that you can say to them that wouldn't sound really heartless. But at the same time, feeling what happened to your daughter was actually quite unusual. Um, and I think that, you know, what, if if I followed your recommendations, it would be um, it would be way more restrictions on my life than I'm willing to to willing to to impose upon myself. Yeah, you know, there's a moment in the book where I talk about a correspondence I had with Stanley Pates, who was the, who's the father of Aton Pates, who was the little boy who disappeared from New York City, and I think it was 1979. That was a, a huge case. Um, he was seven years old. And uh, when I was a columnist at the Los Angeles Times, I had written uh, a column about there was a trial going on. There were, had been at least two men who, I guess, it, it, the crime had not been solved. But I think a guy had come forward and said that he had he had committed the murder, whatever. There was, a, there was a trial going on. The story was back in the news. And so I'd written a column about the cultural legacy of that disappearance and how it gave rise to this sort of safetyism. And um, Stanley Pates had wrote back to me because he disagreed with something else I had written in the column. Um, But he said something remarkable. He wrote, and I'm reading this, I'm actually, I just 
pulled up the email and I, I quoted in the book. He says, concerning the cultural legacy of Aton's disappearance, a perfectly good name has been cursed. We have created millions of helicopter parents who have spawned a generation or so of emotionally stunted children due to this extremely rare tragedy. Mm, I yeah. thought that was remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. One other thing I did want to talk to you about, um, I, we we have a lot in common personally in this regard because we're both divorced women who without, who don't have children, who chose not to have children. Um, and, and we also both have rather difficult relationships, um, or had difficult relationships, you with your mother. And, um, I was brought up from late childhood on with an older sister. I was really fascinated to hear about your experiences with foster kids. Um, and I felt that there were parallels, um, in the, Two of the stories in in the unspeakable, which you're right, is is well to me is um, they're both very fascinating books. To me, the unspeakable is a bit more personal and also more kind of perhaps for that reason I found it more hard hitting. Yeah. Um, and you have you begin that collection with an essay about your relationship with your mother and your feeling of kind of faking the sort of familial affection. Um, and there is also a sort of fakeness to the relationships between the foster children and their foster carers. And this kind of inability to connect across a divide, which rang extremely true to me. I was not, I was never actually in foster care. Um, but I, uh, you know, I grew up with with um, people who hadn't known me as a younger child, and it was very alienating to me. Oh. I had a not good late childhood, and I do remember distinctly this feeling that I remember, for example, I was at boarding school, which I also hated, and I um, one of the other girls was writing a letter to her parents. Um, because most of the people at that boarding school, they were Brits whose parents lived abroad mm-hmm. and who are, who are living in the kind of quote-unquote colonies. I think her parents were living in Zambia or something. Right. And they had sent her to the UK to have a British education. Um, and as she was writing on this thin little airplane, um, in this old foldable airplane light blue airplane letter thing oh that's right those air curly... those like rice paper like uh yeah you would yes. write on those but for international mail you wrote on very thin yes. paper yes. yes yes and and with big curly in big curly capital she had written i miss you uh, um and i thought what an i i just looked at it and i thought I can't imagine feeling that sensation about anybody. What an alien thing to, um, what an alien thing to write. And also thinking, okay, I better not tell anybody that I feel this way or they will be, you know, um, they will think the worse of me. I think it was about 11 or 12 back then. Um, anyway, so those, those two stories in particular really resonated with me. And I, 
wonder if you could talk a bit more about why you decided to do the foster care and what your experiences mm. were like. Well, wow, that's a really interesting connection you just made. Um, so I worked as a CASA, which is a court-appointed special advocate in the foster care system. I was not a foster care parent at all by any means. So um, court-appointed special advocates is a national um, volunteer corps. Um, and basically, you they 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 work for the the system. They they kind of they they sort of do all the things that um, a social worker would do if the, if social workers had more time. Um, you get assigned to a a kid in the system, and you know you're a mentor to some degree. You hang out with the kid, um, but you're really an investigator. You you keep track of like what's going on at school. You you talk to their doctor, to their teacher, to their coaches, to their foster care family, to the biological family, if they're in the picture, you know, you kind of keep tabs on what that kid needs um, and what the actual situation is on the ground. And then you write up court reports and then you go to the uh, hearings because these kids have um, hearings. They, they appear before the judge periodically every, every, three months, every six months, whatever it is. And, um, you know, you, you appear before the judge and you have your report and you say, well, you know, this kid, you know, it, it could be something as simple as um, he would really like to have swimming lessons and he needs transportation to get there. Or um, this foster care placement is um, worrisome and here are the reasons and the social workers overlooking them or whatever it is. It's, it's, it's a really intense kind of volunteer work. And um, I, why did I get involved with that? Um, I was struggling in my marriage um, about the issue of whether or not to have kids. I know it's the kind of thing that, um, you know, you would think people would talk about before they get married, but I think we were, we were both sort of ambivalent and I kind of went more in the direction of not wanting and he went in the direction of, of wanting. Anyway, that's that's a whole other thing. But I think that I don't know, I was I became really interested in, in doing this volunteer work and I absolutely loved it. I got on a case that was incredibly complicated and had a brutal, brutal history. It had been a pretty high profile case. There were parents in prison um, for a long time. Um, and uh, I just loved kind of looking at all the intricacies. It was like, it was kind of like being part of a big giant opera. You know, there were, there were, you know, people, there were people, there were sort of Christian do-gooders. And then there would be like kind of, you know, sketchy uh, other sorts of people. And like it's just, there. it's this whole world um, and I think I noticed that a lot of people who work as CASA volunteers, at least in my observation, they didn't have children. And I think that not having children actually gives you an advantage when you're doing this kind of work because it is so sad. It is so devastating. Um, it's so dark that I think if you have children of your own, it might be intolerable. And because I didn't have a sort of personal stake, um, I was able to be, to have a distance on it and actually do the job and um, sort of enact some kind of change insofar I was able to. Uh, so I think that, that that gave me a great advantage. But yeah, there was something about, um, 
I think childhood and parenthood is really um, sentimentalized in our society. Uh, And I have always felt very alienated from that. I didn't like being a child. I couldn't wait to grow up. Um, I realized that if I had a child, I would probably be a terrible parent because I just don't like anything associated with childhood or I don't like the things you have to do if you are a child or spend a lot of time around them. I don't like the way you have to sort of be in society. And if you're in the foster care system, that stuff is all out the window. You're not having a normal childhood. I think I said something in the piece. I don't even know if this was in a draft that made it like it was as if it was as if childhood itself had been beaten out of them, um, Mm. figuratively, if not literally. And there was something so dark about that. And in, in in being able to sort of channel that darkness into doing this work that could be helpful, um, I found that satisfying. Uh, so, so yeah, um, that's the sort of like existential answer to that question. And I guess the, just the more practical one is um, there was maybe a part of me that thought, well, if, if we're not going to have kids, I don't want to have a baby. I don't want to have an infant. I don't want to have my own child, but like maybe somehow, we could salvage our marriage by adopting out of the foster care system an older kid. So like, let me look into this. And um, I was disabused of that notion pretty quickly. I, I can't imagine uh, a less qualified person to adopt uh, an older child out of foster care than me. I mean, or my ex-husband, we would have been appalling. <laughs> so uh, yeah. Anyway, so that's what that was about. Yeah, I had, I mean, when I was growing up, I had a lot of resentments towards my sister. Um, But now I'm an adult, I sort of feel she had this, uh, you know, she had this task imposed upon her. She didn't want to have a child and she definitely didn't want to have a child who wasn't her own child and was already kind of a bit too old to be adopted, um, to look after. And that, that created a it wasn't exactly an unhappy childhood, but it was a kind of unaffectionate childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have a lot more sympathy with her now. Um, but I also remember that feeling of just kind of waiting for it to be over. And um, I hated being at boarding school. And um, I, but I just also knew that it was temporary. And I just thought, I just get through these next five or six years and then I'll go off to Cambridge. And I will read books, have many dogs, become a blue stocking, and I will never have a boyfriend. And that will be my life. And it will be very happy. Um, that's not at all what happened. But um, I remember just thinking, there's just this annoying kind of childhood part to get through, where you're, you're controlled by other people, and yes. you have to live in this horrible situation. Um, and you can't earn your own money or do your own thing. And once that's over, it, everything will be better. Yep. And actually it was. So, yeah, um, yeah, I had a very similar, <laughs> I have very similar attitude. Yeah. And, you know, having um, edited the anthology about choosing not to have children, you know, one of the thing, you know, I, I just, I, again, that was a conversation, this idea of, you know, people who, people who are 
childless by choice or child free, as the term goes, I, I felt like there was not nearly enough nuance to that conversation. It was always kind of framed as, you know, breeder, you know, there were breeders versus selfish people or they, you know, people who chose not to have children would talk about children as brats or say things like, I forgot to have kids, you know, as if, as if there, there was so much stigma in just saying, you know what, this is not for me. This is a really important job and it should only be done by people who really want to do it. Somehow that statement was harder than just saying like, oh, I'm I'm too selfish to have kids. I'd rather take fancy vacations. And so I, you know, I did that project um, and, you know, I started becoming somebody who was asked a lot about this decision and, you know, all the kind of permutations of it. And one thing that comes up a lot I, I see is people say, well, you know, I don't want children. And if I change my mind, I can always adopt. And that drives me crazy because adopting is having children like that. That is being a parent. Um, and one thing in the foster care system, there's a lot of um, people romanticize what it would be like to sort of save these kids, um, especially a certain kind of I'm going to be a little bit woke here. There's a certain kind of uh, upper you know, middle class white person. There's a lot of kind of white savior stuff going on. Most of the kids in the system, not all, um, but, you know, many of them are not white um, and certainly all of them are deeply, deeply traumatized. There's no such thing as a kid in the in the child welfare system and the dependency system who's not traumatized. That's just a given. So if you're going to adopt out of the foster care system, you are signing up for not just a regular parenting experience. It's a particular kind of thing. Um, and you have to understand that that's what it is. And I think it's just very easy for people to say, oh, uh, you know, I'm doing such a good thing. This kid's life is going to be so much better than it would be otherwise that even if I'm kind of like a half-assed parent, it's better than he would have had, uh, without that, without me. And that's very dangerous mindset. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I would like to ask you about one final thing, and that is... Uh, you had at the time mysterious, sudden, and absolutely debilitating um, illness a few years ago. Uh, you were actually placed in a in an artificial coma. Yes, and medical. What do they call it? Um, yeah, art- medical yes. coma. Yeah, and do you think that that changed your attitudes towards things? Or not? <laughs> well, first of all, it was it was eleven years ago now. Um, mm. Well, the thing is, um, yeah, I had a freak illness. I got suddenly, I just, I thought I had the flu and then I just deteriorated and my, I, yeah, uh, people can read all about it. I ended up in the ICU. Um, and it turned out that I had a, um, bacterial infection from being, I had typhus, not typhoid, something totally different. It's marine typhus, which is, um, a vector borne illness from being, I bit by fleas. So it's real sexy stuff. Anyway. Uh, yeah, no, I was in this coma and I was relatively recently married and they thought if I didn't die, I was going to have brain damage and it was absolutely horrible for my husband and everybody around me. Um, and then, you know, when I got out of it, the doctors were basically like, this is a miracle. Like it really is a miracle that you survived. Um, and I had a few people say like, Oh, are you going to look at things differently? Or like, are you going to be a, a <laughs> like, are you going to be a better person now? And, <laughs> uh, 
I, I remember thinking like there was a little period of time where I thought, okay, well, if I, if I survive this, I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to be so picky or I'm going to like, you know, I'm going to get off the, I will have a child. Like I'll get off the fence. I'll just like, I'll do the, I'll get with the program. I'll do the right thing. And you know, that wore off pretty quickly after a few months, I was back to my old, you know, crappy ways. Uh, and it occurred to me that, you know, maybe the ultimate survival, you know, when you have something bad happen to you, the conventional wisdom, and again, it's one of these sort of sentimental notions that that tyrannize our culture is that you're supposed to overcome trauma by being a better person. Well, maybe the ultimate survival is that you stay the same person. I mean, isn't that better that you got past this thing and you still are who you are? And I, I end the book there um, pretty much. And I do think that that's something uh, worth thinking about, whether or not you agree with it. Yeah, that's an excellent place also to end on, I think. Megan, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm a real admirer of yours, Ayana. So oh, it's, thank um, you. it's really, um, I'm thrilled to talk. And I will put all your details and, and links to things in the show notes. So don't worry about, about that. That will all be down in the show notes below. And um, thank you so much for this great conversation. And now I'm going to read your novel. Okay. You can read it. Your voice is so <laughs> lovely. You can, read it, you can read it out loud and I'll, I would happily just sit here and listen to you. So I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a wonderful week, everyone. If you're hearing this, you have been listening to one of our full-length public episodes. To access full-length versions of all our episodes, support the podcast on Patreon at 2 for Tea. You can also find us on Twitter at 2 for Tea PC. Papa Charlie. Stay well. Stay happy and have a wonderful week.